0: This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll free 800 259 5673 that's 800 259 5673 here and it's always a privilege for me to come and to bring God's word looking forward to today as we uh, I get to finish up Lord willing, Mark with you today. Take your Bibles and let's be in Mark 16. You're going to need them open because I'm not only going to look at uh, Mark 16, but we're going to really look at the whole gospel and talk about the ending of Mark and why he ends it the way that he does. Um, I wondered why Dr. Holmes gave me Mark 16 and to finish up and then I realized that if he probably felt that if anybody could make sense out of the snake handling at the end, it would be somebody from Tennessee. But uh, I, uh, I, I'm going to go with uh, the vast majority uh, of the current scholars as well as the uh, earliest manuscripts and, and end at verse 8, and we'll talk about that. Well, let's look at Mark 16. As the scene, uh, as the scene of chapter 16 opens... It's early Sunday morning, Mark tells us that three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, have left their home in the city of Jerusalem and they're heading for the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. The two Marys had witnessed the place of the tomb where Jesus was buried. They had seen the great stone rolled in front to seal the entrance. Joseph of Arimathea had already anointed the body of Jesus, but it had been hastily done on Friday afternoon because the Sabbath was fast approaching. But now these women had purchased some spices and apparently desired to finish off the anointing that had been left undone in the haste of laying Jesus to rest. So with the sun just coming up, these three women made their way to the tomb. They certainly had no expectations. We get that idea very clearly from Mark of what they were about to witness. They weren't expecting to find anything but the dead, cold body of Jesus. They're bringing spices, Mark tells us, and they're worrying about who is going to move away the stone. Mark gives us a little detail in verse 4. He says, look at these words, he says, looking up as though he wants us to see that they were actually looking down. The posture you would have if overcome with discouragement, miserable, dejected, and without hope. Their dear Lord Jesus had been taken from them. These women had been there at the cross. They had seen the gory, bloody figure of Jesus' body. They had seen Him buried in the tomb. They had seen the entrance sealed. It's crystal clear that there was no expectation at all of a resurrection. I think this is critical because Christianity rests on the doctrine of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no basis for explaining what happened at the cross. It, we have nothing to say about the cross. It's, without the resurrection, it's, it simply becomes an extravagant gesture of martyrdom of a first century Jew who made some great claims and never amounted to anything other than his ultimate death. Theologically, without a resurrection, we are still in our sins. We have no basis to be able to come into the presence of a holy, righteous God. That's what gives us our entry no basis for justification no basis for peace with god no basis for entry into heaven no basis for our own bodily resurrection all we have are the platitudes and hopeful moral epithets of a first century jewish peasant that's all we have if there's no resurrection so these details are significant even when these women saw that the stone had been rolled away they didn't say well well blow me down it's all true they didn't remember what Jesus had said. They didn't say, he did re- rise or did. All the promises of Jesus, all the prophecies, they're actually true. That's not how they respond. It's not as if we don't know, if you've been working through the gospel of Mark, what's coming. Jesus foretold his death and resurrection in chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. Then again in 9, chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. And then again in chapter 10, and verses 32 to 34. He's been telling over and over again what's coming. Now in saying this, I'm not castigating the women at this point. Well, the women, at least they were there. Mark makes it abundantly clear that the men were not there. I think there's even a little bit of a jab there, kind of a a narrator's way of telling you this, because he describes the women discussing who's going to move the stone. Where's the big brawny men? They're hiding chicken back in Jerusalem. The women are going, though. Disciples were gone, they had all fled in chapter 14 and verse 50. And Peter even goes to the point of denying that he ever knew Jesus. All of the closing elements of Jesus' passion, think about this, his death, burial, and resurrection are observed by the women in this gospel. Everyone in the formal category of disciples had fled and none of them come to even claim Jesus' body or care for him in his burial. Is that not just simply pathetic when you think about it? Nobody's expecting a resurrection. There's no sign of belief anywhere to be found. You know, if you're trying to fabricate the story, this would be a silly thing to do, unless, of course, it's true. And I believe Mark has given us the cold, harsh reality of what was going on. So Mark tells us that the women go into the tomb, and upon entering, they see, as Mark describes him, a young man sitting dressed in a white robe. Now we know from the other gospel writers that this young man is an angel, and we know from the response of the women that something supernatural is going on. The women are told we're here alarmed. They're alarmed. It's a a word that even has kind of a sense of fear to it, to one degree or another. Seeing the angel in all of his splendid glory apparently struck fear in their hearts and the angel addressed their fear by saying, Don't be alarmed, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now don't miss this, the angel knew that they weren't looking for the resurrected Lord. They were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the man who died on Friday afternoon and had been buried in this tomb. They were looking for a body. And the angel utters the most important words in all of human history. He has risen. He is not here. Now think about that for a moment. This dead body had come to life. This is a supernatural feat of Almighty God. The power of God is at work here. Dead bodies do rise again by the supernatural power of God. The proclamation of Jesus that he would die and rise again was absolutely true. And as the reader of Mark, we have heard Jesus make this claim again three different times. And even if the disciples were surprised and the women were surprised, we shouldn't be surprised at what takes place in chapter 16 up to this point. We've seen Jesus' power on display through all the supernatural miracles, and we should expect that this too would be accomplished just as he said. But what happens next is what has left most readers completely astounded. So much so that Mark's abrupt ending of his gospel, it is what is to believe to have led to the alternate ending later added to the original story the young man tells the women to go and tell the disciples, including, specifically mentioned, Peter, that Jesus will meet them in Galilee, that they will see him, the resurrected Lord, just as he told them. You would think, now think for a moment, you would think that the response would be overwhelming joy and belief. You would think that, This is awesome. I can't wait to get back to tell the fearful men to not be afraid like the angels have told us not to be afraid. But instead, the women flee and they fear and they say nothing. How can you end the story there? How can you do that? A gospel that ends with no sign of belief? That just is absolutely incomprehensible. In fact, the word that Mark uses here for flee, that they fled, is the very same word, and by the way, in the very same tense that he used to describe the disciples in chapter 14 and verse 50 when they all abandoned Jesus. So in essence, Mark ends his gospel with the same type of response after the resurrection that you have right before Jesus goes to the cross with the disciples in chapter 14 and verse 50. The very same order. And the ironic thing is you have just the opposite of the rest of Mark's gospel. If you remember this, over and over when Jesus did miracles that pointed to his messianic power, which by the way, none of those miracles can even come close or hold a candle to the resurrection. And they had been told after Jesus did a display of his messianic power to not tell anyone and what do they do come on you've been through mark this semester right what did, what did they do they told when told everyone they were told to tell no one they go and tell everyone and here the women are told to go and tell and they tell no one why well, you can't in the gospel that way what on earth is going on Well, if I may, I'd like to take the balance of our time this morning to examine what I believe Mark is doing and why I believe that the ending makes good sense if you think more deeply about and you look more closely at what Mark is doing in his gospel as a whole. I actually believe that the key to understanding, or maybe one of the keys of understanding, is found back in chapter 14, around verse 50, but where the disciples flee, like the women do here. But right after that, with the bizarre episode in verses 51 and 52, in the account of another young man that flees naked from the scene as Jesus was arrested. Now, this count has been the cause of as much ink being spilt about what this is as has been spilt about why Mark ends the way it ends. Trying to decipher what on earth the point is of the two verses, 51 and 52, in the inclusion that is unique to Mark. One commentator described the identity of this young man as, and I quote, one who appears out of nowhere at the wrong place in the story, at the wrong place in the text, like a clown at a funeral. (laughs) <laughs> this unnamed literary follower, he says, following the departure of all followers. Many have concluded we'll never know who he is or why Mark included him. Just move along, nothing to see here. But that seems completely unlikely, I feel. And I know there's, I mean, there's about as many views about who this young man is as there are views on why Mark ended his gospel the way he did. But I believe if you examine Mark's gospel as a whole, it's unlikely that Mark didn't have a very specific intention about including this young man. I mean, Mark knows nothing about being a sloppy editor, though some have tried to accuse him of that. It's clear that he's doing something deliberate and purposeful with what he's saying and when he says it, where he places it. This became clear to me when I saw how Mark would tell a story and then go off into another story only to come back to the original story. As you read those things, sometimes it can be confusing. When you examine the book as a whole, though, you see that Mark wasn't an ADD afflicted author who became easily distracted, rambling from one story to another and then going back, squirrel, and then coming back to it again. I don't, not at all. In fact, it's become known to be called Mark in Sandwiches, where he will sandwich a story that he begins with a story in between and finishing up the story and All of it has a theological meaning, usually the story in the middle, helping you understand why he's telling you the story as a whole. He was very structured. used his stories carefully to teach deep theological truths. Go back to chapter 8 in the gospel. You need to have your Bibles open. I want you to look through with this at me as we look at the gospel. One of the clearest examples of how he would do this... uh, Take a story and have a theological purpose. Was his story of the two part healing of the blind man in chapter eight, verses twenty two to twenty six? If you remember this story, this man <clears throat> could see partially after Jesus's initial touch, and then he was able to finally see twenty twenty when Jesus once and for all opened his eyes. When he looked, he said, "I I, I can see." Something like a tree moving. It's people, but it, it really doesn't, it, it's not clear. Now, why on earth did Mark tell that? Well, Mark, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was using this blind man, a true healing that had taken place, as a literary device to point to a deeper spiritual truth in the stories that immediately followed. Because if you look right after this, everything's about seeing and seeing clearly. The disciples were beginning to see who Jesus was, but they needed their spiritual eyes opened even more to see he Jesus, see Jesus for who he truly was. You have in verse twenty-seven, right after this healing. Well, who do people say I am? Well, you know, some people see you as Elijah, some as John the Baptist, who's who's him? the Christ? Then he tells his death and resurrection helps them understand. And This is, by the way, the first time he tells it to them. They need to begin to see what he really came for. And he tells them at the end of chapter 8, or actually the beginning of chapter 9, that some of you here are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. And then immediately there's the transfiguration afterwards. And the display of Christ in all of his glory with three of those disciples. You can't study Mark's gospel for very long without seeing that he has consciously and meticulously selected events and arranged the order of his selection for what Kenneth Bailey calls clear, discernible theological reasons. As a storyteller, Mark's not just giving an historical account of the life of Jesus, he's not a historian. He is, one, inspired of the Holy Spirit to tell the story so that it might have meaning. For example, in human literature, when Shakespeare wrote Macbeth, he wasn't simply giving a history of Scotland or depicting what it was like to be royalty. What he's doing in the story is he was demonstrating with that story what it is to gain a kingdom and lose one soul. There's actually a purpose behind it storytelling. So let's take a moment to see what Mark's been doing in his gospel. Let's go to chapter 1. Hopefully I can get this finished in the time I have. But as we open chapter 1, notice that Mark comes right out of the gate telling us who Jesus is. Jesus is. It's front-loaded. I mean, you don't get too many words in it all. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Messiah, Son of God right off the bat he tells us that and then he immediately follows that up by telling us what he's the christ the son of god clearly his intention to tell us as a reader that i'm going to make i'm making this claim is it true and he tells us it's a reality that was prophesied by isaiah this isn't my claim i'm making alone this is no new claim it's a claim that goes all the way back in god's prophetic literature It's witnessed by John the Baptist. It's testified to by a couple of good witnesses, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, at his baptism. And then after defeating Satan in the wilderness, he defeats Satan himself in the wilderness in a very brief description, just a... Jesus comes in contact with Satan. Jesus wins and Jesus comes out and what does he do? Jesus bursts on the scene proclaiming the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You can't get any more in your face than that. And that is what Mark does in just the opening. This call to believe the gospel to repent and believe, is as much to the reader of Mark's gospel as it was to those in Galilee where Jesus did this. And so having laid the foundation of the claim of who Jesus is and his, and the witnesses of those who verify that claim and his message that if this claim is true, then his message is absolute. if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the Son of God, what other response is there than to repent and believe? He has come on the scene. Mark begins to take us on what some have called the trip of discipleship. He begins there in verse 16 of chapter 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting an end into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left everything. They left it all behind and followed him. If you step back and you look at the journey that Mark takes us on, in the gospel it has three major legs. It's a journey he's taking to the cross. Let me show you this. The leg begins in chapter 1 and verse 16. He calls the disciples. He's calling the reader, I believe, as well to understand this trip of discipleship. Look over in chapter 8 and verse 22. From chapter 1 and verse 16, all the way over to chapter 8 and verse 22, you're in Galilee. Jesus is teaching in Galilee. He's in that region. That's where he is. And then in chapter 8 and verse 22, that first leg concludes. What does the leg in Galilee conclude with in verses 22 to 26? It concludes with the two-part healing of the blind man at Bethsaida that I referred to a moment ago. That concludes in eight twenty-two to 26. Notice that the journey immediately after this healing of the blind man picks up in chapter 8 and verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi. They begin the journey away after this healing of the blind man from Galilee to the next leg of the journey towards Jerusalem. And what does he immediately do As he begins the journey in in verse 27. He has them declare who he is. They're beginning to see more clearly as they're making their way to Jerusalem, at least being told more clearly. And he tells them, foretells of his death and resurrection the first time. All of this on the way to Jerusalem. This leg of the journey, turn over to chapter 10. This leg of the journey concludes with yet another healing of a blind man, Bartimaeus, in chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Isn't that interesting? First leg of the journey in Galilee ends with the blind being made to see. Next leg of the journey... It ends again, transitions, with a blind man, Bartimaeus being healed. He recovers his sight. In this situation, he joins the trip to Jerusalem. And the third part of the trip is the final destination of Jesus. And where does that begin? It begins immediately after 1052 in eleven chapter 1, now when they drew near to where? Jerusalem. He's taking us on a trip with the Savior. Showing us that he really is the one who they prophesied, he was prophesied to be and declared to be. And no matter how many times Jesus told the disciples what would happen, they refused to see. This is used over and over in Mark's gospel. That you need to see, You need, to, and that's why the blind becomes a major issue. And a transitional miracle when telling of the story when he goes from one leg of the journey to the next. Jesus even told them exactly, by the way, let's turn over to chapter 14. As they get into Jerusalem, Jesus even told them exactly what their response to everything was going to be. Look at chapter 14 and verse 27. He tells them, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Pause. You'll all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In other words, all of you are going to fall away and this too is prophesied in Scripture. They would do nothing but run, but Jesus would be faithful to save his sheep. That's what we're seeing. We ought not to be surprised that Mark wants us to even understand. Don't be surprised even by the reaction of the disciples because this is not something that happened that God was not aware of. It's something that God had actually planned and prophesied so that we might know that God is doing all of this. This is not some fanatical movement that sprung up. This is a work of God. He told them that the shepherd would be struck by the very plan of God. The sheep would be scattered, but that wouldn't be the end. Verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. By the way, that's where it all began was in Galilee. Peter, in his bold and prideful fashion, made it clear that they all might fall away. But he would stand. Poor Peter. He thought that he could defy the very prophecy of God. Well, I I don't know what that says in the Old Testament, but... The pos, the all doesn't reply, apply to me, it only applies to them. Paul didn't know, or Peter didn't know, that in that case, all meant all. He thought he could succeed in his own strength. But Jesus broke the news to him that not only would he, not get this, Jesus breaks the news to him here that not only would he scatter too, but his falling would be even more shameful because he would be a denier of Jesus three times over. Still, Peter refused to believe. He was more confident in himself than he was the prophetic word of God and the word of the Son of God. You could preach on that, couldn't you? How often we're like that. But soon everything Jesus had said very quickly began to unfold and all the disciples could see with their fleshly lives was eyes was that everything was beginning to unravel. It ended exactly as Jesus said. Every one of them in chapter 14 and verse 50. Shows you how quickly it occurred in the narrative. In chapter 14 and verse 50, every single one of them left Jesus and fled. And it's at this very moment, at this very moment, that the young man clad in linen bursts onto the scene. There's no reason to think Mark has no purpose in this brief inclusion. So why is this cameo included? John Calvin was right when he said of these two verses, the chief point is to ascertain for what purpose Mark has related this transaction. In the brief time we have left, let me suggest the following connection that I believe will help us understand even how Mark ends. I want to connect between the young man in 1451 here before the death of Jesus and the young man who announces the resurrection. Not that they're one and the same, by no means. But that Mark uses, I believe, these individuals as a literary device with his careful grammatical connections to help us see the theological implications of Jesus' death just like he has other theological implications of things, for those who want to follow after him, and in this case, those who failed miserably like Peter and the other disciples. The placement of this brief episode right after the disciples all fleeing, I think is actually telling... Mark is describing for us that as the others flee, there was this young man, look in 51, who was following him. To follow was what the disciples had been called to do. That was Jesus' language in the beginning. It was code for being a disciple. The disciples followed, the young man followed. The disciples fled, the young man fled. He is used by Mark, I believe, as a literary example of the disciples' failure. Jesus had called upon the disciples to leave everything and follow him, but in the end, they totally abandoned Jesus. But why recount this little scene, though? I mean, hadn't that point been made just in the account of the disciples themselves? I mean, that's enough to tell us that they fled and and be done with it. Well, the only substantive difference between the fleeing of the disciples and the fleeing of the young man was an unfortunate wardrobe malfunction. The difference, though, is not insignificant. The nudity is mentioned twice by Mark, vividly pointing to the shamefulness of the abandonment by the disciples. Nudity was a symbolism of shame. And what these disciples had just done was shameful. And they continue in this shame all the way through the end of the gospel. Now, follow with me what Mark does in the telling of the story. Again, what I think Mark is doing with what he is saying. Notice in fourteen fifty one to fifty two that the linen cloth is mentioned how many times? Twice. Nakedness twice. Linen cloth twice. This piece of clothing being stripped away from the young man, I believe, again serves as a, a device symboling the shame, symbolizing the shame of the abandonment. Of the disciples. The general shamefulness of the disciples as a whole. But then as you read on just right after that, it's emphasized further in the specific shamefulness of Peter who fully denies Jesus. And when he hears the rooster crow and he remembers what Jesus had said, he is broken and weeping left to wallow in his shame. Then Mark describes in chapter 15 verses 1 to 41 a sad and pathetic picture as Jesus goes to the cross completely alone, suffering the humiliating shame of the cross and abandonment even of God himself as he suffers under God's wrath for our sin. Jesus suffered the shameful death that we deserved. And at this point, in the story in Matthew, or Mark, I should say, chapter 15 and verse 46, when Jesus is buried, Mark introduces another linen cloth. By the way, this is Mark's only other use of the word. He uses it twice with the young man that the cloth is stripped from, the young man's wardrobe, and now he mentions it again twice with Joseph of Arimathea. Could it be that this is Mark's narrative strategy to use the linen cloth as a literary device to serve as a clothing transfer, if you will? In a subtle switch, the man's young man's linen cloth, the garment of shame, becomes the garment of shame that now buries Jesus in death. Not that they're one in the same cloth. That's not what I believe he's doing at all. But he used, this is used by Mark as a literary device with a theological purpose. Furthermore, in Mark 16... That we read earlier, we find the only other use in all of the gospel of the word "young man." That is earlier employed for the naked runaway in chapter fourteen fifty one. Now we find it in sixteen five, and here it's used for the clothed reporter. It may answer for us why Mark doesn't identify him as an angel. Five other times in Mark's gospel he uses the word angel. Why not here? Why doesn't he do that? Everybody knows it's an angel. He must have had purpose, I believe, in being so discreet. It seems plausible that Mark was creating a clear link to the only other young man just two chapters earlier. Again, not that the two young men are one and the same, any more than the linen cloth was one and the same, but that they serve as literary devices to teach a deeper theological meaning in the story. Now continue to track with me. Both accounts give specifics about what the young man is wearing only two uses in mark's entire gospel of the verb wearing guess where they appear 1451 and 52 chapter 16 with the young man in the tomb the young man of 14 was naked and shamed but now this young man that we find later on is fully clothed in brilliant white And remarkably, there are only two uses of the adjective white in the entire gospel. Here in 16.5 of the young man after the resurrection and earlier in chapter 9 and verse 3 at the transfiguration of Jesus where he's shown wearing these gloriously white garments pointing to his future resurrected glory. And in both accounts, the only places that we have the word used is the word alarmed. The disciples saw Jesus alarmed and they were alarmed in his glory. And the women see the, the young man in his white robe and they are what? Alarmed. Something's going on, I think, with Mark in all of this. And he's telling it. This is Mark's purpose in the literary imagery of these two young men and their garments. It could be that the, shame, the garment of shame of the fleeing disciple is transferred to Jesus. And in return, the garment of glory of Jesus is passed on symbolically to the young man in the tomb. The garments have been exchanged in a literary sense. The runaway's garment of shame in Mark 14 becomes Jesus' garment of shame in Mark 15. And Jesus' garment of glory back in Mark 9 becomes the reporter's garment of glory in Mark 16. Could it be that this is Mark's version of 2 Corinthians 5.21? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because of what Christ has done, our shame can be exchanged for his glory. I believe this would also explain the mention of Peter by the reporter in the tomb. Explicitly so. Peter was explicitly pointed out as an example of shame after the naked young man appeared. In fact, what do you have? In the first one, young man, linen cloth garment that is stripped off, which illustrates shame, and Peter is the emphasis of that shame. You go to the 16, you have young man, garment of white, connected back in the gospel to the garment of glory on Jesus, who do you have explicitly mentioned, Peter. The same construction it appears to me to be. And now Peter once again is specifically mentioned so he could know that even in his colossal failure, he too is included in the invitation to come and meet Jesus in Galilee. Forgiveness and restoration awaits those who will come, who will come to the resurrected Savior. And this is why I believe Mark ends the gospel the way he does. In essence, he finishes exactly where he started on this trip to discipleship. You reboot and goes back, where it all began in Galilee. It now ends with an invitation to Galilee. We aren't told what the women do because the question is, what will. The women do. The question is, what will you and I do, the reader? Throughout the story, think about this. The narrator has permitted the reader to be with Jesus the whole time in ways that even the disciples and the women weren't. The reader heard the voice of God declaring Jesus to be his son when no one else heard. The reader was present with Jesus in the wilderness, tested by Satan when no one else was around. When religious leaders, crowds, and disciples even didn't get his claims, the reader heard them clearly. When the inner circle slept in Gethsemane, you and I stayed awake and heard Jesus' anguish prayer. When Jesus cried out to God in abandonment, you were there in the story. And now the reader in the, the gospel is left with a decision to make. Will he or she walk away in silent fear, or come meet Jesus in Galilee. It's a lot better than a box of snakes. (laughs) Mark takes us on the trip of discipleship through his gospel. Because of what Christ did, our shame can be exchanged for his glory if you will believe. The invitation is left left open. Will you follow? At the literary level, Mark leaves us hanging. It's actually a brilliant ending if you just flow with where he's going the whole book. Will we follow without fear, without fleeing? Who then is the naked runaway? He's every one of us, shamefully feeble and fallible who think that we're fine and clothed, but we're not. We're naked and ashamed, who need to be clothed. And the enrobed reporter, he's every disciple who will come to the resurrected Savior, who will gloriously restore the fallen sinner by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Will you come and find Jesus in Galilee, just like he said? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to understand it better.